Good morning. My name is uh, Sam, and I was asked to read this morning. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 18, uh, chapter 1, 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Thanks, Sam. Well, uh, I kind of get better at this. I realize I didn't introduce myself earlier. My name is Cameron. Uh, If I don't know you, so glad you're here with us. and today, we're, you know, it's a new year, uh, we're just taking a few weeks, uh, at least this week and one more, um, to kind of just reset, take the opportunity to set some things before us that we think are crucial uh, for us as a community. Last week, we just talked about the grace of God, just kind of recentering on that. And this week, um, we, we're going to talk about the four pillars of Door of Hope. And if you don't know what those are, um, they are kind of the four kind of guiding principles or guiding values or whatever you want to call it uh, that have since Door of Hope's inception over, gosh, like 14 years ago um, that have guided this church community. Um, and since we've started Door of Hope Northeast, we've, we've, surely these have come up from, from time to time, but I realize we've never like sat down as a community and had a uh, pillars talk. So today's the day. Today's the day. You know, my wife and our two wiener dogs, I don't know if you knew, I have two wiener dogs. Two of them. We have two. What is wrong with us? Um, little Penny and Beezy, they're really cute. They're really sweet. But we, the four of us, Penny, Beezy, myself, and Susanna, uh, we moved to Portland um, in June 2013. Um, so gosh, coming up on nine years, is that what that is? Yeah, coming up on nine years. And uh, we heard, we, you know, we had this list of churches we wanted to come visit when we moved to the city um, that we had heard about through various means. But um, one that we hadn't heard about was Door of Hope until just a couple of months before we moved, it turned out that the coffee shop that my, or restaurant that my wife worked at was right next door to a shop that was owned by someone whose kids went to Door of Hope in Portland. So they started talking one day, striking it up. Susanna mentioned we're moving to Portland said, oh, you should go visit Door of Hope because uh, my son-in-law, you might know, John Abraham is a youth pastor at this church called Door of Hope. We were like, all right, add it to the list. So we did. And Door of Hope was one of the, I believe it was the first church we visited for whatever reason, but we probably visited 10 churches that summer, some of them multiple times, some of them we went to like, got to visit community groups and stuff like that. We, we wanted to take take the opportunity to choose a new church home very seriously and do it very deliberately. But what drew us to Door of Hope was a number of things. And maybe, any, are any of, you, any of you go back to 2013, like that was the last era in the annex? Any, any old annex people? Okay, how about, how about pre-annex people? Like little yoga studio people, not in the room. Josh Wilder was one of those. Josh Wilder's one of those. He's one of the true OGs. Um, But nonetheless, at at the Annex Church building there on 20th and Hawthorne, where we used to meet, there were so many things that drew us to the church. One, just the amazing Bible teaching from Josh White and Tim Mackey. We were just floored the first time we heard each of those those two open up the scriptures. Um, There was, in my opinion, the amazing musical worship that to me, what was so refreshing about it is that it didn't feel like it was just trying to ape the trends of kind of CCM music, but felt organic to kind of the community of musicians that, that were there at Door of Hope at that time. Um, or, there, you could, for us, one of the things, some of you, it was a, might have been a, a turn off. For us, it was a turn on. 
Should I talk about it in terms of turning on? I don't know. <laughs> Scrub that from the podcast. <laughs> no, it's true. It did turn us on. <laughs> it's weird. Um, the charmingly grungy church building. You know, some of y'all remember that. Some of y'all need to see the pictures uh, to believe it. But, but it, was, it was this charmingly grungy church building with this real weird orange stained carpet. But I, I remember Josh Wyatt saying that it... Um, that, that, that building and other aspects earned, that, earned Door of Hope in those days the, the title of the dive bar of Portland churches, <laughs> which Josh wore with a lot of pride. That's awesome. Another thing, maybe, maybe this, this is one that, that, that contends for actually the top reason. This is one of the top two for sure. Um, was just the sense of community and happenstance connection that, that we formed with particular people at the church. And, and you'd be surprised, or, or if you're new to, a, to any church, if you've ever been new to a church, you know how meaningful that is to like, meet people, feel like you're welcomed into their lives, feel like time and space is made for you. And tragically, that doesn't happen. I don't presume that happens every time people walk into this building uh, or into one of our community groups or whatever, but I desperately hope and pray that it is the case. Um, that's huge, and that was, that was a grace to us at that point. But then finally, ne- right neck and neck with that was the idea of the pillars, honestly. The four pillars of Door of Hope were, were something that as soon as we heard them expounded and articulated, we thought, wow, that's an amazing, that's an amazing set of values by which to organize a church. And so about five years ago, when Josh and the elders and the pastors of Door of Hope began dreaming about what would eventually become Door of Hope Northeast, the church we are a part of right now. When we started dreaming about that, um, we knew that the pillars would have to be one of the defining elements that united any future churches that would get birthed out of this, including this one. And, you know, different churches, um, they have all kinds of vision statements and mission statements and you name it, core values, whatever. And as long as they're in step with biblical principles, that's wonderful. Like, we're, we're not trying to argue that the four pillars of Door of Hope are the only faithful way to organize a church or the only four values, that there can't be more, there couldn't be less, uh, you couldn't phrase it a different way, whatever. That's not what we're saying. It's well and good and probably a sign of, of like the beautiful diversity that God intends for his church, that churches look different and they, they prioritize different things, at least within, within kind of a safe, safe uh, framework. So... These are not the only good and right way to bring focus and direction to a church, but they are some of the things that have made Door of Hope and now Door of Hope Northeast uniquely what they are. And so I'm, I'm actually super excited and super honored to continue to carry these with us as, as we move forward with our church. And so for the rest of our time, on the cusp of this new year, um, I really just want to expound on the four pillars of, do- of Door of Hope. And so if you're visiting or new, Um, I hope that these bring clarity to what we're about. I hope that you can walk away going, okay, I I understand a bit more about who this church is and why they do some of the things that they do or don't do some of the things that they don't do. Um, But if you've been around for a long time, even still, I hope that they bring a fresh focus and excitement to who we are as a community. I hope they galvanize all of us. So let's jump in. Let's jump in. Well, the first first of the four pillars is uh, the cross. It's the cross. And we're going to just briefly glance at that passage that Sam read for us. You heard it read, but I'm going to read it one more time because it's so powerful. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There are a bunch of passages we could turn to to discuss the cross, obviously, 
Um, but but this, is, this is, I think, one of the best ones we could. And, and, and the cross pillar is this idea that we, like Paul, preach Christ and him crucified. This is the heart of our theology, and it's the heart of our identity. Because the cross of Jesus is the center of the story of God. The Old Testament looks forward to it in anticipation. The New Testament reflects back on it as the New Testament authors try to grapple with what did it mean that this Jesus came and incarnated? That he, what, what did his teachings mean? What, did, what are the implications for these communities of Jesus followers that are forming? We're calling the church. The New Testament reflects back. The gospel, the message that Jesus is the reigning and saving king who died on the cross as our atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins in a free act of grace, who offers any who believe in him his righteousness, a new life, and a new family in his kingdom, never to be taken away. This is the center of Christianity. And that the Christ is crucified, was crucified, is the center of that gospel. That's what we mean by the cross. So in this passage, Paul calls the message of the cross the power of God. He calls it the key to salvation. He calls it the wisdom of God. That means if we neglect the cross, if we neglect that cross, we become proclaimers of a powerless, salvationless, foolish message, a false gospel. Everything that we might ever do as a church community, no matter how cool the programs are, no matter how tight-knit the community is, no matter, no matter what a blessing it is to people in our city, it's for naught if we don't preach Christ crucified. This passage also reminds us of something else that's really crucial. It reminds us that we have to recognize the scandal and appearance of craziness, absolute craziness of the cross to those outside the faith and also sometimes to those inside the faith. We have to become comfortable. We have to let ourselves get pushed into comfort with the uncomfortableness of carrying a message that will be mocked, that will be hated, that will be misunderstood at some point or another. The cross itself is a reminder to us that the church, at its best, is a counterculture that will be prophetically out of step with the world for the good of the world. So we'll talk more about that when we discuss the city pillar, but for now, just remember, believing the cross, listen to this, believing in the cross of Jesus makes you weird. <laughs> it does. It just, and I'm sure you feel that. That's not news to you, living in Portland. It feels weird to believe the things that we do. And Paul does not shy away from that. And God did not shy away from that. In fact, it pleases God to use that which seems foolish to shame the wisdom of the world. But we don't have to pretend that it's not the case. We don't have to pretend that it's just extremely comfortable being Christians at this particular time and place. I'm not sure that it's ever meant to be comfortable at any time and place until the kingdom comes in full. And remember this too. Paul asked this powerfully with this series of questions there in verse 20. Though you may feel ashamed at times of Jesus, tragically, that you may feel embarrassed for being a Christian, that you may feel insecure, that you may feel misunderstood or hated or whatever, Paul's questions get at a really deep reality. Who else is there to turn to? Who else is there to turn? Is there anyone else to turn to to answer the dilemmas that we all face as humans? Is there any other answer to the reality that death comes for us all? Is there any other answer to a humanity that seems almost hopelessly fractured and disunified across all kinds of lines? Is there any other answer to the fact that though, though it's very rare to find someone who doesn't have a moral code of some kind, no one can actually even live up to the moral codes that they do have? Or the question, is there even such a thing as a moral code or is this all just matter in motion banging around to and fro? And the horrible atrocities of our world actually have no significance or meaning. Is there anywhere else? It's a good question to wrestle with. I say no. When we talk about the cross, 
we can also mention another thing, that this is also a shorthand way to remind ourselves that what we want to do as a church community is stand in the ancient tradition of historic Orthodox Christianity. Um, We are aiming neither to conserve a historically mutated and particularized Christianity or to progress towards some new invented Christianity. We aren't looking to invent a faith for ourselves, but to preserve with the absolute best of our ability by the grace of God, the faith that was for once for all delivered to the saints through the Hebrew Bible, the message of Jesus himself, the apostles that he commissioned, the New Testament that collected their essential teachings and the core beliefs that have united the main historic branches of Christianity summarized in the Apostles and Nicene's Creed. To be very clear, those creeds aren't of the same weight of scripture, but whenever basically the whole church across (laughs) the world comes and says, these are accurate summations of what Christians ought to believe, we should pay attention. We should pay attention to that. My point here is that we are messengers, Door of Hope Northeast, not inventors. There is a faith that has been passed down. And we will fail at this, but our aim and our goal is to preserve that faith and to pass it on, carry it forward. We're messengers, not inventors. One other thing we could say right now about the cross is that it reminds us to keep our focus on the center. And what that means is we don't want to needlessly divide over theologically secondary issues. Now, even in saying that, you know there are some, there are plenty of times whenever it's not super clear what's secondary and what's primary. But, you know, perhaps that's a conversation for another day. The point is, anything that's essential to the gospel, anything that is very, very clearly taught in scripture, which is probably more than many people want to admit, um, we actually want to be a community Oh, I'm sorry, we don't want to divide needlessly over those things. The things that aren't in that first category. So we actually think it's, a val- it's good. It's good to be a community made up of folks who disagree and debate the secondary teachings of the Bible and theology. We want to hold tenaciously to the historic faith and to do what is clearly taught in the scriptures. Even when that makes me uncomfortable or you uncomfortable or if it angers those around us we want to be faithful we must be faithful in those primary things but we we desperately want to fight to not be an overly sectarian church we want to be within historic christian orthodoxy a big tent church a big tent church we think there's goodness in that and so the cross is our first pillar quite intentionally Our faithfulness as a community before God primarily, first and foremost, stands or falls in how we faithfully honor this pillar. May we preach Christ and him crucified, and may this be the deepest, most formative part of our identity, Dwarf Hope Northeast. Amen? All right. That's the cross. Well, the second pillar is community. The second pillar is community. It's, it's that we live life together, and it's a call to proximity with one another, to intimacy with one another, and to loving commitment to one another. I'm so, I, I think I've mentioned this before recently. Mark 10 is actually, it's in the running for my favorite chapter of the Bible, so I'm really excited that we're, we're inching our way forward in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to get there eventually. Mark 10 is amazing. But listen to this passage. This is right after uh, Jesus' encounter. This is the conclusion to Jesus' encounter uh, with the rich young ruler. If you remember that story, there's this man, comes up to Jesus. He says, uh, what, do I, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus starts talking to him about the law. He says, I've kept all the law. Jesus doesn't push back on him. It's a very interesting conversation. But then Jesus says to this man, now here's what you need to do. You want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? You need to sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, Come follow me. And it's the one thing that the man can't do. It says he walks away sad. And so so Peter's comment here in verse 28, it's immediately seeing this man could not leave what Jesus asked this man to leave. But Peter said to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Peter points out, this man walks away. He couldn't do, he couldn't leave what Jesus was asking. But Peter says, look, we've done it, Jesus. We have friendships and jobs, uh, families, and we've come with you on this journey. We have left everything, and Jesus doesn't challenge him. Jesus says, yeah, you have. And the things that Peter mentions, house, family, and, and, and you may or may not know this, but, but, but the family unit, specifically, like brother and sister relationships were the closest relationship in the ancient world. In many cases, closer than marriage relationships. That's how intimate the family was. And I'm sure you have some idea of how, t- how tied into like sort of the honor culture, honor system it was to, to honor your parents, honor your father specifically. So Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship in many cases being leaving that which gives you your ultimate sense of security, your ultimate sense of belonging, your ultimate sense of uh, safety net, your ultimate sense of kind of relational, um, yeah, just relationship. These are the deepest things that you could leave, you could be asked to leave. And the reality is that many have to leave these things to go after Jesus. And others, others see these things leave them for following Jesus, if that makes sense. You think of people being rejected, some of you perhaps, being rejected by your family for choosing to follow Jesus, being cut out of the family inheritance, losing friendship, losing relationship, being ostracized in some way. These are all real things that happen. But what's interesting about this is notice what Jesus says. He says that those who have had to leave these things behind, quote, will receive a hundredfold now in this time. What on earth is he talking about? What are you talking about, Jesus? What do you mean a hundredfold? You want to know what he's talking about? Look around. Legitimately, look around. He's talking about them. He's talking about them. Jesus is talking about the church. As Josh White likes to say, and I, I've begun to like to say as well, I feel self-conscious copying him, but it's a great way to put it. We are not saved into a vacuum when we're saved by Jesus. We're saved into a community into a family. What Jesus means is that yes, you may have to lose things at great cost, but I am giving you a family that runs thicker than blood in the church. Now, pause. Tragic reality, very very simple reality, is that most of us have not experienced church to feel this way. To feel that though I've lost my family, I have gained infinitely, an infinitely wider, bigger, family because we still are operating under a whole lot of western individualism and american individualism that's hard to overcome and i do not pretend to have mastered at all living this way toward those in my community towards y'all nonetheless jesus's plan for making up the difference in the pain of loss in this life is your brothers and sisters in christ And you are meant to be that for the other. In this room and on all the people who call your church home, that is the kind of relationship we're meant to have. And this is behind every time the New Testament writers talk about when Paul writes to the churches, he talks about his brothers and his sisters. You know, don't let that just be kind of an interesting little, you know, saying or whatever. He means your new family in Christ your eternal family in Christ that will never, ever be taken. That's beautiful, and that's powerful. So the community pillar for us, it's just to put right there in our core kind of identity-shaping values the fact that we don't think this is incidental to Christianity or to the life of the church. This is part of the absolute heart. 
that we would be on a journey to become this kind of community, to see ourselves as it, with these kinds of relationships to one another. And as I said before, that means the community pillar, it pushes us to prioritize proximity. That means we have to actually get close. That means that like just, just the act of sitting in this room, kind of like listening to me or even singing together, valuable though that is, that's not that, is it? This takes more than simply kind of ticking the box of showing up to some events. This is a starting place, but, but this is meant to sprawl out into proximity in the actual day-to-day -day lives of one another, in intimacy, where we can actually share what's really going on, our pains and our struggles and our joys and our celebrations. The community pillar also asks us to make a loving commitment to one another. And why do we say commitment? Well, it's because when we're just left to the whims of our feelings, most of us are just going to opt out, you know? Like, if you just kind of leave it like, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I will love my brothers and sisters in the church when I feel like it. You're not going to do it very often. <laughs> I'm not going to do it very often. I think of this great quote from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read that book, uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's really great. But Lewis writes from the, from the perspective of, um, sort of an elder demon writing to a younger demon, giving him advice on what the younger demon should do to sort of like, you know, mess with and distract some Christian from, from their discipleship to Jesus. So here's what the demon says. He says, when this Christian gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. <laughs> I love that. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the very next pew contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. That's God's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Lewis is on to something there. The church is not glamorous. And it's not meant to be. It's not meant to be. But left to our flesh, left to our preferences, we are immediately going to run into people that annoy us, people that we're like, oh, I, I don't get any social capital from hanging out with that person. In fact, people might start to ask weird questions of me if I get too close to them. Ah, they don't really give me a lot of joy to spend much time with them, so I'm just going to go a different direction. You know, we often say, I hope you say, that we want a church to be a, a church that is less divided, more diverse. Racially, socioeconomically, age, background, interest, whatever. But then we find it much easier to just slip out the back when we actually find ourselves in close proximity to those who don't see things the way that we do. People that don't vote like we do. People that are older or younger who have a completely different experience that colors the way they see the world. The diverse, welcoming church begins with each individually personally welcoming, not just welcoming, but loving someone they personally find difficult to welcome. You know that, right? You talk about a church being like, man, the open arms of Jesus may all come and find his grace here. That starts with you actually having that attitude. You actually receiving people. Not just you, me. All of us. If we don't make a commitment to love those in our church community, it'll just slip away, or will slip away. These things sound better and sound more glorious than it is to actually live them out when you get into the difficult grind. So I just want to mention a couple of practical aspects of this. One, even just specifically our worship gathering, I mentioned, you know, Sitting here, worshiping together, it's not necessarily the same thing as forging deep connections with one another. But I do want to ask, you know, kind of point blank, do you view this time as a spectator event? And I hope you don't because it's not that good to spectate at. <laughs> I'm not that entertaining, I know. Wish I was more so. And God, thank God for 
the incredible musicians we have at this church. But coming and listening to, to beautiful worship music it isn't what it's all about either. But do you view this as a time to come and consume, or do you view this as an essential time to do what God has called us to do together? Is it a meaningful part of your calculus when you come here that there's actually people sitting next to you? That we're doing this as a community? That when we come under the word together, sing with voices co-mingled together, care for and teach one another's children downstairs, as a sign of the rule of Jesus and mutual encouragement both to our people and to the outside of the community of Jesus. Similarly, do you, as with this being our most regular time of getting the bulk of our community together, and of course it's a lot harder to get our whole community together with COVID, but do you capitalize on it by maybe coming a bit early? Coming a bit early, staying a bit late to meet new people, inviting people to lunch afterwards, whatever. There's actually a reason. I know there, there's this whole concept of like door of hope time. You know how our, on the website, what time does church start? 10 o'clock. What time does church actually start? I don't know. 10 after-ish? Um, there's two ways to view that. One is, one is um, church actually starts at... 10 or 15 after, so plan accordingly. But act, in actuality, the reason we, we actually plan to start a little bit later is, is to actually build in some relational opportunity here. It's actually because a meaningful part of this is the connections that get formed relationally here. And so we don't, we don't want anyone to just you know, come in as things are already, get, already get going so that they don't have a chance to chat with anybody and leave right as the last song is sung. Uh, we actually want to build into the way this morning works time for us all to chat and to connect, and to actually maybe form connections that can transcend this meeting time. So uh, an encouragement would just be to come a little early, even knowing that we're going to start a little bit late. Still, come a little early. That's by design. Come a little bit late. Use this time not just for, for singing, which is important, or to hear Bible teaching, which is important, or to take communion, which is important, of course. But may it also be a time and an opportunity to connect with people that you don't know, to actually begin to form relationships. Second thing is community groups. I mean, obviously, the community groups are a huge part, in, uh, part of the way in which we try to live this pillar out. We, we have structured our church in such a way that one of the primary activities, in addition to Sunday morning, is sometime during the week where a small group of people commit to be in one another's homes and lives week in and week out for an entire school year. And it's easy to dismiss that, yeah, yeah, churches do that, yeah, I've been doing that a long time, yeah, community group, that's kind of old hat, there's nothing exciting about it, but I ask, who else do you actually take the time to intentionally sit down for two hours every week and talk about Jesus with? And have a time to actually share prayer requests and pray for other people? It's significant, it's deeply meaningful, if we can prioritize it and lean into it. Lean into the opportunity that's there. Community group does not do what Sunday mornings does. Neither does Sunday morning do what community groups can do. Both of those are essential parts of belonging to this church. Another thing is just kind of events and other gatherings. We mentioned the men's event or the Play-Doh or uh, the book club that's coming up. We just encourage you not to view that as like, oh, that's a task that the church is creating to do goal A, B, C. These are each. And no one, hear me, no one is expected to be at all and do everything that the church does in terms of events and stuff. Hear that very clearly. In fact, it probably would not be good for you to do that. Nonetheless, each of these is an opportunity to form relationship with people. That's why we do this stuff. It's to connect. It's to try to get what can feel like a disparate individualistic group and form a family. And so we create these opportunities, and we can't force that to happen, but we can continue to create those opportunities and talk about it and pray for it and long for it. And I would just say finally that the organic relationships of this church are one of the absolute most important things that you might not even think about as part of church life. But one of our greatest goals is that the relationships that make up this room and online and everything else would spill out into the actual lives and organic rhythms of our people in homes, over meals, in coffee shops, whatever, into places that the church has not coordinated, if that makes sense. 
A sign of health would be if I hear about, oh man, Lee and Grace were hanging out with Jeshua and they went and got coffee and like no one had to organize a sign-up sheet <laughs> to like make that happen, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's not extra, you know, that's not like disconnected from the church. That's the heart of what we want to see in all of these relationships. So, pressure's on, you three. Um, no, but so, I know so many of you are doing this. And, the, the, and so many of you are maxed out. And of course, we, we know this is a strange time to, <laughs> to do social things. And there's grace for all of that. But nonetheless, our second pillar is community. And it's a drum we want to beat continually and continually and hope that over time the Lord is going to build us into this where any of us might feel this way. I have had to set aside much to follow the king. But he's given me much. He's given me much in his people. Amen? Third pillar, simplicity. It's the idea that we believe in simple church. This is our philosophy, and it aims to bring focus and clarity to all that we do. Um, I want to read from Matthew 6. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. It says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Here's our key verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So this comes from a section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching, the one that kind of lays out most clearly kind of the ethical vision of life in his kingdom and his community. That's a section of it about anxiety. And he's talking about how faith in God is an antidote to anxiety and about how worry adds nothing, but trust is the answer. And verse 33 is key for us. Jesus says the answer to anxiety or worry or fear is primary attention on the kingdom and righteousness of God. Seek first. Let your primary attention, let your primary energy, let the first fruits of your labors and your life and your focus, let your single-minded devotion fall on God's kingdom and his righteousness. And then you can trust that he will provide for whatever else you need. And he's not saying that you don't need something to eat or something to drink or something to wear. He's saying focus primarily, simplistically, on his kingdom, and he'll take care of the rest. With your primary devotion pointed the right direction, God will take care of what you need. Keep the main thing the main thing is another way you could put that. Major on the majors, which frees you up to minor on the minors. The simplicity pillar has always, ironically, been the hardest to define. You would think it'd be the simplest, but uh, it's the way these things work. But what it does is it forces us, as we just said, it, it's there to force us to keep our attention, keep our main focus on the main things. It encourages us to focus clarity on what's most essential for us to do together. And so another way you could put that is the simplicity pillar asks us to do fewer things better. And that's really essential right now. As, as a small church with a small staff, um, even in terms of raw numbers, we have an amazing group of volunteer leaders, but nonetheless, compared to, compared to big churches, small group of leaders, people who, who have time and energy to give. Um, this becomes crucial if we're going to stay on mission. Um, so doing fewer things better, it means we're, we're probably always going to be lean in terms of the number of programs that we offer. We offer some programs. We think they're important. We're going to offer the ones that we think are crucial for the life of the church but we're not trying to replicate sort of the buffet of programs that a mega church can offer. And hear me, there's nothing wrong with offering a lot of programs, nothing at all. But nonetheless, that's not what we're trying to replicate. And even if our church were to multiply drastically in size, that's not what we'd be trying to do. 
And this leads us also to emphasize, to place an emphasis on the grassroots, and COVID's made this hard as well, but if you've been around Door of Hope for a long time, we, we really hope that people will take it upon themselves to, if they see a gap in the community to say, hey, I'm going to meet that gap. I'm going to fill that gap. There needs to be a space for this thing to happen. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to just invite the people of our church to do it. And we hope that the church leadership can blow the winds in the sails of those kinds of things. Simplicity Pillar also helps us focus on simple beauty in terms of production. I, no, I don't want to be too cavalier with this, but I, it's my strong assumption that we are never going to invest in a massive light show system for this room. <laughs> Maybe we should. And honestly, I, I, there is nothing wrong with that. This isn't some sort of like moral stance against that. There, there, I know there are people in our church community, maybe you're one of them, who really wish, oh, I wish we could just, I wish the music could be louder. I wish we had a band every Sunday. I wish we had the lights, these things that could kind of help me focus in or, or whatever. I find it really emotive and helpful for worship. That is okay. That's great. But for us, we think an emphasis on simple beauty is where we want to be. We don't want to be overly produced. Um, if you're watching online, there's a reason that you're not watching an 8K live stream right now, you know, where you can actually see the pores of my skin. Believe me, you don't want that. Yeah, we, we have what we need to pull it off. We have what we want to be able to invite those who can't be here in person to participate online in the limited way that allows. We think that's important in this season. Uh, but we're just not going to become like the digital native church. We want to keep it simple. We want to keep it simple. That compels me. It may frustrate some of us, uh, but I think over the long term, it's, it's, it's a good and healthy thing for us, particularly in a city like ours. So simplicity. Talk about a number of ways, but we want to seek first God's kingdom. Simple, focused devotion on the main things and trust that the rest will follow. And then finally, our last pillar is the city pillar or the pillar of Portland, since that, that is our city. That is our city. The city pillar means that we are committed to Portland as our mission field and our relational center of gravity. And I just want to read this passage. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Man, what a privilege. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And I, you know, as with all these, we could go a number of different directions, places in the scriptures we could look to to talk about this pillar. But I, I like this one and specifically the idea of being one of Christ's ambassadors. What's an ambassador? An ambassador is, a, is someone who represents one kingdom or one nation or whatever, one place, who has entered into another to bring a message, to bring the message of the rulers of that other place and kingdom. For us specifically, this is God's message of the reconciliation between them and God that Christ has accomplished. And it's an invitation to join in this alternative kingdom. Though you may still, though you do live somewhere in some earthly kingdom, for us, Portland, or nearby Portland, you are fundamentally invited to become chiefly allegiant to the kingdom of God and to become an ambassador yourself. An ambassador serves not in the king's place, but in the king's service. The king speaks to the ambassador. So being an ambassador means ultimate commitment to one kingdom while living in another. So Jesus is the king. He's the king of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It says he's ruling at the right hand of God right now. And we talk about this all the time. But one of the, what we are specifically awaiting the second coming of Jesus, where he comes to bring his reign in full in this world. He reigns now. 
you're a believer, you are part of his kingdom. You are under the king. You've pledged your allegiance to him. But it's an already and not yet situation. Yes, he's reigning, but he has not come in full. One day, we believe he will come in full, and he will be the first perfect ruler in human history. And that is good news. That is good news. But in the meantime, we wait. In the meantime, our human cities, our human cities are not <laughs> part of his kingdom. So what is the human city? What is Portland? I think we do well to think of the city as both beautiful and Babel. Here's what I mean by that. And maybe you're feeling one of these over the other right now. But I encourage you to think of the cities as beautiful. Because what are cities if not densely populated groupings of image bearers of God? That God loves. And not just that, that he loves and that people that bear his image, but people that God's common grace... Unbeknownst to so many of us, we are given time and talent and energy to actually be conduits of his loving goodness to bless and to benefit. So when you drive around Portland and you see an amazing restaurant, whoever whoever's cooking that food, you know, that chef or whatever, they may not, let's assume they don't know Jesus. The fact that they are able to make an incredible meal, harness the raw materials that God has made and turn it into something truly awe-inspiring, that's not of their own accord. That's actually, unbeknownst to them, the gracious love of God working and flowing through them. And it's to all of our shame that we don't recognize this. We just presume, I'm really that good or I'm just that creative. I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps, but it was God himself who gave these talents who enabled these things to be enjoyed. So we can celebrate them. Every time you see something truly good and truly beautiful in this city, it's, your, your, your thoughts aren't meant to stop there. That's a nice thing, but to travel up that to God and say there is a beautiful, wondrous creator God behind that. So when we see good in, in Portland, we affirm it, we celebrate it, we enjoy it. At the same time, we can think of the city as Babylon as Babel, as we can think of the city as a concentrated blast of what the New Testament authors call the world, which can be thought of as a collection of human ideas and values and habits and systems that exist apart from allegiance to God, and because they're not allegiant to God, they therefore perpetuate evil. The world is influenced by human rebellion, and it's ultimately under the rule of Satan and his kingdom tragically utilized to advance Satan's purposes rather than God. So Portland, I think, evidences both of these realities. There are, there are so many things that just, just in and of the city itself drew my family to this city. And we, we still, we love living here. We don't want to live anywhere else. There are so many hints of God's common grace and so many beautiful things about the church, even beyond Door of Hope, just like the church in Portland that are deeply encouraging all kinds of graces here. And at the same time, we all know our city has taken a severe beating over the last couple of years. Some of that's been inflicted by city leadership, some of it from a lack of support for healthy or just policing, some of it from bad or unjust policing, some inflicted by bad faith agitators, some inflicted by larger issues like COVID or drug, drug epidemics, economic crises, so on. I mean, just this huge conflation of things and factors. We usually like to try to simplify it down to one or, one or two, but it's complex. Homelessness is a tragic, inescapable crisis, and not just an abstract crisis, but our neighbors suffering. Suffering. 2021 recorded 90 homicides in Portland which blew the previous record from 1987, previous recorded record, 1987, out of the water by 20. Most violent year in recorded history in our city last year. There were 1,288 shootings. As Christ's ambassadors, it is fair and at times necessary for the church to be a voice of critique, prophetic critique, 
It is okay to mourn and lament the ways in which our city has decayed. But, crucially, but, we must always fight to be a presence of love and joy that is for the city that we find ourselves in. We can't afford to become cynical or let our hearts curdle towards hatred or dismissal of the place that we live, which, what, again, what is a place but a collection of neighbors that God loves, whom he's called us to love. So there are two ways, two tempting ways. I've heard lots of, lots of people uh, comment this way. I think it's a good, good little heuristic. Two tempting ways to neglect our roles as ambassadors to deal with the tension of living in a difficult place in a difficult season. One is isolation or separation. You just kind of hide out in holy huddles within the city. You say, look, we're just not engaging with any of that. I'm only going to ever see anyone who's already a Christian, who's part of my church community, whatever. I'm just going to keep it safe, nice and isolated. Or the most extreme form of that is to abandon the city altogether for a safe haven. Let's just, you know, heard the Midwest is nice right now. A lot of people are doing that. And I don't think that's in every case wrong, of course. Nonetheless, if all of God's people in any given locality decide to just up and move, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. So isolation, separation, that's one way. The other way, maybe the easier way, is to simply erase the tension by conforming to the world's or the city's values. Assimilation to twist Jesus' message where it becomes indistinguishable from the message of the world or the message of Portland, to just blend in, to just be another voice parroting the trends of the day. Our agenda, though, is not our own agenda, and we have no right to change it. And that's either to suit the political left, the political right, or the political middle. We just have to be faithful to Jesus. So we can embrace the role. So, okay, those are the two, two alternatives. Isolate, assimilate, or we can embrace the role of the ambassador as one of cultivation. To be distinct from the city in order to be fundamentally for the city. One implication of that is that our fundamental allegiance is to the heavenly city the heavenly country, the kingdom of God and King Jesus, to self-consciously acknowledge this is not my final home. This is not the place where my fundamental allegiance is. Or think of the words of 1 John 2.15. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. To have that posture, I am not to give myself over to this way of being in the world. Only Jesus's. There's another verse. For God so loved the world. You heard that one? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? You ever put those two side by side? Do not love the world or the things of the world. For God so loved the world. That's John 3.16. There's also the idea, though we are not to love the world in that sense, we must be present and love the world in another sense. To care deeply about the welfare of the world to see it come to be reconciled to the Lord. There's a, in conversations like this, Jeremiah 29, uh, the prophet Jeremiah often gets quoted, but his advice to the exiles living in Babylon was to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on the city's behalf, for in its welfare, welfare you will find your welfare. I think that's part of our, our call to want the best, the absolute best for the city of Portland. Because we love our neighbors and because that's ultimately going to be good for us as well. So we don't lose track of where our fundamental allegiance is, but we are present in the city for the good benefit of the city because we love the city as well. So the city pillar, take all that, boil it down, the city pillar defines our missional focus. We are a redeemed people resisting and serving and proclaiming Jesus among our families, our neighbors, our coworkers, and so on. This is our mission field. We love our city in word and in deed.
A second thing the city pillar does for us, and this is, this is the one that's always been controversial, is that it defines, it defines our relational center of gravity as a church. Um, and that's been phrased different times over the years. I, I remember a couple of these talks. There, there, was, uh, there were days whenever I remember this building being super full back when it was just one door of Hope Church, you know, running like four services here. And at one point, Josh basically was up here and he said, hey, I need everyone to write down, uh, write down your zip code and you're going to hand those in and we're going to get a sense of how many people like don't live in, in the city of Portland. And people did that. And then there was like a sense that, wow, there's a lot of people that don't live in Portland who are coming in. And he basically the next Sunday was like, hey, if you don't live in the city of Portland, we need your seat. You should go. <laughs> Anybody remember that? Yeah. Anybody still bitter about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Josh has pumped the brakes on that a little bit <laughs> since. He has. I think the way, the way that, that we like to talk about this now, certainly the way I like to talk about this now, is not so much, if you don't live in Portland, get out. It's to talk about a center of gravity. And here's the reality. Every local church must be somewhere if it's local, right? And now there are plenty of churches trying to be translocal, like we're an online church that serves people all over the world. I don't think, I think we need a little bit of ecclesiology lesson there. Um, You can provide great resources to the world. Many of these churches do. Um, Thank God for good people that are putting good online content out where people are actually there to, to engage it. Nonetheless, I don't think that's a local church. A local church must be somewhere. We, aren't, we are not trying to be some sort of like internet church or something like that. We want to be a people for the reasons we've already described, community. We want to be people who can actually be in one another's lives the way Jesus has called us to be. That means we have to be somewhere. That means there will be some of us who are just pragmatically too far away, who live too far away from the community to ever have a shot at being in that kind of relationship. Is that fair to say? I think it's fair to say. Now, I can't define where that is for everyone, but I remember remember Tim Mackey using this illustration one time in a a sermon, and and it it really applies to this idea. Mathematics, there's this idea of a bounded set versus a centered set. And a bounded set basically says, here's the boundary, and anything within that boundary can be part of the set, okay? So that would be like drawing, drawing some sort of geographical boundary and saying, hey, if you, do, if you live outside this line, we don't want you here. A centered set is basically a way of saying there is a center point and everything that is moving towards that center point is part of the set. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, so it's not a geographical boundary. It's are you making progress toward that center thing? I think that's how we should think about this. We want to be a centered set as it relates to the city pillar. Basically, that says, hey, if you live in Portland, great. This is a lot more comfortable and easy to hear. If you don't live in Portland, we want you to seriously consider, can you give your time and your energy and your missional intent to this city here with us? Can you come and be here? That might mean a lot of driving. That might mean a lot of inconvenience. Uh, But can you do it? Can you be in a community group here? Will you come and serve with us down at Portland Rescue Mission? Can you actually come and be a part of the life of the church here? If so, please do. We'd love to have you come and be a part of this community as we are on mission here in the city of Portland. But if you can't, if you go, man, Sunday is kind of all I got. It's just too hard to get to and fro. Then we would just say, hey, I, I think you're missing out on what church can be for you. And I'm guessing there's probably some healthy churches that you're having to drive past to get here. So we'd encourage you, strongly consider that. Strongly consider that. Does that make sense? So for anyone who wants to come and be a part of Door of Hope Northeast, we just want to make it very clear that we are, our, our missional focus is to serve the city of Portland. Our community groups meet here. Our service opportunities are here. We are proclaiming the gospel to a city that we hopefully love and believe is in desperate need of this gospel. And if you want to come and partner with us in that work, you are invited and welcome. But we just want to be very clear, this is where we are, and this is who we're serving. Amen?
So that's it. That was a lot. But I think that's crucial for us to revisit these four pillars, to re-solidify who we are and what we're about as we move into a new year. The cross, community, simplicity, and the city, specifically the city of Portland. So if you're here, this is a call, a fresh call to commitment and participation in all of that. If you know Christ, we, we implore you to be obedient to him by committing to his family. And not just, it's not just an obligation. It's not just you know, an obedience issue. It's, it's committing to receive the blessing that he has for you in giving yourself over to his people and to his family. It's an invitation to press in and to see if he isn't good, if his promises aren't good. So this is who we are. This is who we want to be. By God's grace, we will grow in each of these things and learn to do them with more wisdom. But cross, community, simplicity, and the city. That's who we are. That's where we've been. That's where we're going. Sound good? All right. Let me pray for us.